Hey there, this is Jonathan Edwards. Welcome back to the program. I'm very thankful that you're listening again and thankful that you're part of this ministry, your encouragement, your support. Uh, the outreach I get from you guys, I get emails, I get texts. When I see people at gospel meetings, they tell me about how helpful this podcast is. And that is so encouraging. Thank you. Please continue to let me know because it really is a burden sometimes to produce it. And uh, the burden, I know it pays off in many ways, but I, I do enjoy the encouragement. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We're in part two of a mini series called Killing Enemies. And we learned what that was last week when in second rather in first kings chapter 2 a young solomon is establishing his kingdom and taking some last minute advice from elderly king david who at this point in the narrative is now dead and establishing his kingdom by either executing or exiling people who are his enemies we've mentioned 3 so far adonijah the older brother who tried to take the kingdom from him abiathar a priest who betrayed david in his final days and the third was Joab, David's military commander, but one who had shed innocent blood. And based on the law, David advised Solomon to execute him. Now we're on the fourth, and that is Shimei. And we introduced him last week as the Benjamite who was throwing rocks at David while David fled in a previous episode. We're going to jump right back into the narrative. We're going to see how Shimei is given an opportunity to stay safe and doesn't take advantage of it. But the majority of this episode will focus on the Christian age and how we, as a spiritual kingdom, also need to consider our enemies and take care of them. Now, we go to great lengths to make sure that we understand that we live in a spiritual age with spiritual enemies and that we don't treat people physically the way that they treated them during the theocracy of the Old Testament. So please keep that in mind. And so, with these things considered, let's jump back into this conversation called Killing Enemies. There was still the, the fourth one in your study, and it's specifically the second one that David mentioned. That David, in his last-minute advice, said, you need to put Shimei to death. So... He's a, a character that, that doesn't have a whole lot. It'd be really helpful maybe if you'd take a minute to remind us all who he was in David's life and how it's come to this. Shemaiah was a Benjamite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and is from the house of Saul. Mm -hmm. So he, he is a relative of Saul somehow. I don't know that the Bible says exactly how he's a relative, but he's from the house of Saul. Now, a few years before this, when Absalom led his rebellion against David, David and his family and close followers had to flee from Jerusalem. They right. had to get out of there because if they stayed, they had been in big trouble. So and they it was, fled. It was like a walk of shame. Yeah. As they were leaving, this character named Shemai shows up and begins to throw rocks at David <laughs> and begins to curse David. Yeah. And one of David's nephews... Abishai, you know, the three sons of Zeruah, is Joab's, with David. Joab's and he brother. said, do you want me to go over there and cut that guy's head off? <laughs> and, you know, he would have done it, too, if David right. had said, go get him. But David said, no, this may be from the Lord. It may be the Lord is teaching me something here. So Shemai 
appears as an enemy to David, mm -hmm. cursing him. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the law says you shall not curse the king. You mm -hmm. shall not curse the leaders. Mm -hmm. So this could have been a, a crime worthy of the death penalty as well in doing that. But David practiced grace on that occasion. Now, David comes back after the battle. Right. And Victorious. the Bible says one of the very first ones to meet him is this Shemite character. He's acting a bit different this time. And he comes with a different attitude this time. <laughs> you know, he doesn't come cursing and throwing yeah, rocks. Very penitent. At David, he is a humbled man uh -huh. because he realized that his goose could be cooked real quick. Pardon, <laughs> pardon the, the, the figure. And so, again, Abishai pops up and says, let's cut this guy's <laughs> head off. Let's get rid of him. You know, he's kind of following in the steps of his brother Joab. But again, David says, no, there'll be no more bloodshed. Now, David never forgot that. Now, even though he said, we're not going to take his life during my lifetime. Yeah. After David dies, that's a different story. Now, Solomon says to Shemai, after David has died, you need to stay here in the city of Jerusalem and don't leave. Right. This is my command to you. Right. Stay here. Live your life here. Don't leave the city of Jerusalem. Is there anything that we can maybe look into a little bit deeper on that? Is it a power play? You know, he's taken away his influence or taken away, or, you know, the Bible's kind of silent about the motivation, but do scholars think there's a reason why he had to stay in Jerusalem versus being exiled to his home or anything? Perhaps because Solomon wanted to keep an eye on him. Now, keep in mind, he's from the house of, of Saul. Right. And there are still individuals in the kingdom that like to see the kingdom of Saul reinstated. Mm -hmm. So perhaps Solomon views him as a potential political enemy of some kind. Yeah. And perhaps what he wants to do is show, show Shemai that he's the boss. He's in charge. And he says, you stay here in Jerusalem. Yeah. Where that probably he could keep an eye on him. So this is his one strike. Kind of like Adonai, yeah. you got one. and You've got one chance. And uh, Abiathar got one, and he took it. And now Shemai has one, and that is there's a boundary that you can't cross. You can't leave Jerusalem, unfortunately. Unfortunately, he does. <laughs> the Bible mentions he has some slaves that run away. So he he's kind of like Adonijah in the sense that he's going to try to force Solomon's hand. He doesn't think Solomon is, is strong enough to keep his words. Yeah. Remember, Solomon's still a young man, right. still wet behind the ears, so to speak. So he goes ahead and goes out and finds those slaves and brings those slaves back. He, he bluffs Solomon. And Solomon calls his bluff mm -hmm. and he calls him in and he says, listen, man, didn't I tell you not to leave Jerusalem? Yeah. Didn't I specifically tell you not to leave Jerusalem under the threat of death? And then the scriptures said in verse 44, then the king said moreover to Shemai, you know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father, David. Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. That King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down and he died. Well, same story, fourth verse, right. almost, if you think about it. The, the, these were four enemies 
to this new kingdom of Solomon. Yeah. Now, the last part of the of verse 46, the last part of the last verse of the chapter says, thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a key little thought. Now, it's saying, now the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. In other words, the scripture seemed to be saying that it was necessary to get rid of these enemies. In order for Solomon's kingdom to be one of peace and harmony and tranquility, these enemies had to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. If they were not dealt with, there would be potential problems in Solomon's kingdom. So these enemies had to be destroyed. Yes. Now, you take a moment before you, you, know, you, you transition into a kind of a Christian application, but you, you do take a time uh, to differentiate between what Israel was and what we are, just so that people don't maybe follow this line of thinking down in such a way to think we have the same rights and responsibilities that, that they did in the Old Testament. And you use this word theocracy. You say you have this reminder about how Israel was a theocracy and we're not, so we don't want to take it too far. Can you take a moment and flesh that out for us, explain what a theocracy is and, and, and the difference between theirs and, and our spiritual kingdom? Well, I appreciate the way you mentioned that we have to be careful as we read this story and as we make application to us as Christians, we have to rightly divide this and understand it because the story itself is brutal. Mm-hmm. It's a brutal story, what's mm-hmm. going on here. But it reminds us that in the kingdom, kingdoms of men, oftentimes there, there, there are executions, there's harsh, ruthless practices and in the kingdoms of men enemies have to be destroyed but we also have to remember at this time as we're reading this that that israel is what is called a theocracy mm-hmm. that's one of those big long theological words <laughs> not really real long but it's a theological term that we don't use a whole lot but it basically means that israel was both a political and a spiritual kingdom right now imagine in your minds a circle And in that circle, put the words political and spiritual. Right. And that circle represents Israel. Israel was a political and a spiritual nation, Mm -hmm. spiritual kingdom. When you read the law of Moses, you will find that there are laws that deal with political Israel, laws about kings, Mm -hmm. laws about murder, laws about things that refer to political kingdoms. There are also laws that refer to a spiritual nation as well. Mm-hmm. You'll find that in the law of Moses. So what's going on here is that Solomon is living in a political and a spiritual kingdom. And so the things that are happening, the brutality, the things that commonly happen in the kingdoms of men are happening in the kingdom of Israel. Mm-hmm. However, as Christians, there's a change. The kingdom that we're a part of today is not a political, spiritual kingdom. In fact, you need to visualize two circles side by side. Right. And in one circle, write the word political. In the other circle, write the word spiritual. Mm -hmm. Now, in that circle where you have the word political, that circle refers to the kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of men are political. Yeah. Now, the kingdoms of men 
sometimes have to practice harsh things. In fact, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 7, right. the Bible right. indicates there that the kingdoms of men have the right to bear the sword. And that refers to execution. So in the kingdoms of men, they have the right to do these harsh political activities. But yeah. in saying that, let me say it for oh, a little bit. Sure. But in saying that, in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of men, what we live in as Christians, it is spiritual. It is not political. It is spiritual. And so therefore, within the kingdom of God, we do not have the right to bear the sword as the kingdoms of men do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's easy, I think, for folks to think that the Democratic or the Republican Party is, in fact, God's party, you know, because they'll latch on to some of the moral ideals of one or both of those parties and assume that this is the one that God wants. But yeah, that scripture that you mentioned from Romans 13 uh, really does a good job of differentiating between those who will uh, bear the sword that serve God's purpose, but then also distinguishing how we, you know, in the pronouns, they and we, how we are not part of that movement. And so maybe we can then transition into what is the application for a spiritual kingdom. So if, if we're not creating a hit list of you know, people that we don't get along with, then what are Christians supposed to take from this last-minute advice of get rid of your enemies? How do we apply that spiritually? This is where the, the study, I think, gets interesting when we make application to Christians. Mm -hmm. Because your first thought is, how in the world do you make application <laughs> to Christians about killing enemies, killing our enemies? Right. Keep in mind that the enemies to Israel would have destroyed the peace and harmony and tranquility of that kingdom. Mm -hmm. Those enemies had to be destroyed. Now, the same thing is true for us as Christians as far as spiritual enemies are concerned. Mm. Not mm -hmm. physical enemies, mm -hmm. spiritual enemies as well. We are not talking about killing people. When we say that today as, as Christians, that it's necessary that we destroy or kill our enemies, that within the kingdom of God today, the enemies need to be destroyed as well. We're not saying that it's anywhere closely related to what's going on here in this right. story. Right. These enemies had to be destroyed in order for Solomon's kingdom to be peaceful and tranquil. There are certain enemies within the church that need to be destroyed as well. Now, we're talking about spiritual enemies. We're talking about right. enemies that we can consider figurative, right. metaphorical enemies, right. not literal people. Remember mm. that Jesus said on the Sermon of Mount, on Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemies. Right. So those in the world that we might consider to be enemies to us as Christians, we love them. Mm -hmm. We pray for them. Mm -hmm. Pray for those who despitefully use you, Jesus mm -hmm. would say in that Matthew 5, 44 passage. So keep in mind the enemies that we're going to talk about that we need to destroy are not people. Right. Are not anything closely related to this story. It's just that this story helps us to see the need of ridding ourselves of enemies. Right. And, and, and so you, you have two in the notes. Um, perhaps there are others, and 
someone who's creative could could come up with more. But uh, you begin with this idea of putting self to death. And so if we are to take it spiritually, obviously we're not talking about you know ending our lives. We're, we're talking about this idea of metaphorical of self. Maybe you could begin with just defining that. What does self mean when we talk about putting self to death? And uh, what does it mean to live for self? These are some questions that I have just as I kind of look at this section. You mentioned there are two examples I want to give. These two examples involve an ungodly characteristic that we can have. Right. And the second one is a practice. Okay. So when we talk about their enemies that we need to to destroy within our own lives, one is an ungodly characteristic, which is self. Uh-huh. And the other is a practice. Right. Okay. That we'll talk about here in just a minute. Okay. But the first one is self. Now, when we talk about self, that that's the part of us mm-hmm. that caters to to what we want to do, our own wants and wishes. A lot of people live their lives according to what they want to do. They are the master in control of their own lives. They put themselves first. Mm-hmm. And sometimes as Christians, if we're not careful, we can live that way too. Right. We begin to do what we want. It becomes an idol. Yeah. We begin to we begin to live to please ourselves. And there's a great danger in doing that. Mm-hmm. That that can destroy us as Christians if we're not careful to to put ourselves to death. Let me uh, to to practice self. Let me give you an example. Okay. Remember back in the book of Judges, the Bible says in Judges 17, verse 6, everyone did what was right in their own sight. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read the book of Judges, it is a sad little book to read. Right. <laughs> as far as being faithful to God. Mm-hmm. Because repeatedly Israel falls. There's this little cycle of sin and, mm-hmm. and servitude and sorrow and a savior and judge come along. But... The reason for that, one of the reasons for that is because of this statement here, everyone did what they thought was right in their own sight. Judges is a book about people living for self. Well, you can't keep allowing self to control. You can't live, keep living with self. You can't right. live with self and Christ at the same time. You have to do something about self. Mm-hmm. You've got to take care of self. Remember, self to a Christian becomes an enemy. Because you begin to seek your path rather than God's path. Now, right. Jesus made the statement in Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Not only does he say you need to deny yourself, he says to take up your cross daily. Now, the cross is a symbol of execution, it's a mm-hmm. symbol of death. He's not just saying this is some little burden in life that you need to take care of. You need to put something to death. You need to die daily. Paul described the same situation by saying in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Mm-hmm. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see, self becomes an enemy right. to the kingdom. Right. It becomes an enemy to you as a Christian. Yeah. It cannot be ignored. You can't pretend it's not there. And at the same time, it cannot coexist with Christ. Now, I want to give you an example. Okay. I want you to imagine a heart, you know, shape of a heart. Okay. And in that heart, there's a throne. 
one throne, mm-hmm. only one throne. Now, someone or something sits on that throne, and it controls you. Whoever occupies that throne in your heart controls you. You become a slave to whoever or whatever sits on that throne in your heart. Mm-hmm. Now, when we put self on that throne, then it motivates us, it guides us, it leads us, it controls us. And self keeps us from serving the Lord because we serve ourselves. Mm-hmm. We are supposed to put Christ on that throne. Yeah. And our Christ rules us. We yield to him. The problem is that sometimes as Christians, we want to put self and Christ both on that throne. And there's only one. Right. They can't both fit there. Right. When you determine that you want to serve both self and Christ, in reality, you put self on that throne Mm. and it controls you and all. Now, self is a really dangerous thing. I found this chart the other day. Okay. And in this chart, I don't know how good it is. I know our audience can't see the chart, but in, in the chart, in the very center of the chart, there's a heart with self sitting on the throne. And the idea of this chart is these are all of the negative things that come from self. Okay. Self produces these things. That's why self's so dangerous. It produces so many negative qualities. For example, and I'll just read through these quickly. We won't spend much time on them, but our ignorance of our spiritual heritage. You know, we're children of God. We're a part of the family of God. When self rules, we ignore that and we actually find ourselves a part of the family of the devil. Discouragement, disobedience, unbelief, all of these are attributed to self when self is on the throne. Guilt and worry Mm -hmm. and jealousy Mm -hmm. and a critical spirit, all of these attributes come from self when self reigns on that throne in our hearts. No desire for Bible study. Don't have time to study the Bible. No no love for God or for others. Mm-hmm. Possessing a, a legalistic attitude that I can save myself somehow. All of these are attributes of self. They come from that, that monarch self reigning on the throne in our hearts. Our impure thoughts, our, pure, our poor prayer life that we mm-hmm. have sometimes, the frustrations we have, our apathy. In our aimlessness, yeah. all of these negative qualities that I mentioned here come from self. Right. And self is reigning in art. So that's why Jesus said, you got to deny self. Right. That's why Paul said, I've crucified myself. Mm-hmm. You have to put that to death. Mm-hmm. That's an enemy to the kingdom. That's an enemy to your spirituality. And you've got to put self to death or you will struggle. Amen. I love that. But it's not the only enemy. Just I'm like, sure there are many enemies. Sure. And all. But there was a second one that I wanted to mention. Right. The, and, and just like David, you know, had his list for Solomon and his advice, he had two. So you have two. And you, you talk about if, if we not only are we, what did you call it? A, a mindset. Self was an idea. And then the, the second one was a behavior. Was was that how you identified it? Well, self is an ungodly characteristic. Okay, ungodly characteristic. And then the second one was the behavior. 
correct? The, sec- the second one is, is a practice. A practice. A practice. Oh, I got it wrong on both. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should work on my listening. Um, so we're going to talk about a, a ungodly practice, and that is false teaching. False teaching. And that's something that we need to put to death spiritually, the way we put self to death by denying self and, and obeying God. Um, but this ungodly practice of false teaching, can you maybe help us understand what you mean by that? We are living in a dangerous time as far as the acceptance of false teaching is concerned. We sort of live in a world where it's live and let live. Mm-hmm. You let me live the way I want. You live the way that you want. And neither one of us will ever say anything negative toward the other. And that finds its way into religion as well. Everyone has their own beliefs. And who are we to question the beliefs of others? So we're told. Right. And the idea is what's right for me may not be right for you. And what's right for you may not be right for me. And who are we to question each other over this? Very subjective. And so after a while, you see that that it's almost like there's no such thing as false teaching because right. it's basically what I believe and you believe what mm-hmm. you want to believe. And it doesn't matter as long as you're sincere in your beliefs. Yeah. But I want to suggest that this also can be an enemy to the kingdom, false teaching, because of the danger that it presents. Now, Jesus had some things to say about false teaching. Interestingly, some of the most peaceful, loving people in the Bible are the ones that warned about false teaching. For example, Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Mm -hmm. We all admire the Lord for his compassion, his tenderness, and his gentleness. Yeah. But Jesus is the one that said this in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, saying, be careful. Yeah. There are false teachers out there. Yeah. And they give the impression of being gentle and kind and being one of you, but they're not. Right. They're they're ravenous wolves mm-hmm. disguised. Yeah, and you have Acts twenty twenty nine, which is this is Paul talking to elders about how these false teachers can come from even among you, right? Paul says that after my departure, after my death, Grievous wolves, or I think the the New King James may say ravenous wolves or something like uh-huh. that, will come among you not sparing the flock. Right. So even Paul addresses the issue that there will be false teaching mm-hmm. that will come among you. And then there's the example of John. John the Apostle is nicknamed sort of the Apostle of Love. Right. And he, he really encourages Christians to love one another. Yeah. He has some wonderful things to say about love in 1 John. But he also says this in 1 John. 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Mm. So Jesus warned against false teaching. Right. Paul warned against false teaching. Mm -hmm. John warns against false teaching. Mm-hmm. But that's not all. Peter does also. In fact, the the book of Second Peter seems to contain the, the theme or the warning against false teaching. Right. 
when you read first peter the theme seems to be suffering right you're going to go through persecution christians will suffer this is how christians suffer for the name of christ but the theme of second peter seems to be beware of false teachers i think they're connected in the idea that that in your suffering if you're not careful people will try to come and help you yeah but they're really not helping you because right. they're teaching you false things mm-hmm. and especially second peter chapter 2 oh. almost the entire chapter deals with the theme of false teaching and it is a it is closely related to the book of jude if you read jude mm-hmm. and second peter 2 they're very much parallel yeah that peter especially warns against false teaching there's a couple of things i wanted to to bring out okay in second peter 2 verses 1 and 2 he says but there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed he's saying just as there were false prophets among the people in israel there will be false teachers among God's people in the church. Mm-hmm. If we jump down to verse 17, I think he gives two extremely powerful illustrations about how false teachers promise and can't deliver. He okay. says, there are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The first illustration is there are wells without water. In biblical times, as people traveled, you know, they didn't have nice convenience stores every two or three miles. There wasn't a loves on every corner back right. in those days. They they traveled from well to well, especially on long journeys. And it was important to go to these wells to find water to drink, mm-hmm. you know, to, to save their lives. And you can imagine being thirsty and parched and seeing a well ahead. And getting to that well and putting the bucket down to get something to drink and nothing comes out. It's dry. Yeah. Peter says that's false teachers. They promise great things, but they can't deliver. Mm. They're just like a well that's dry. Yeah. The second illustration he uses is storm clouds. Storm clouds that, that promise rain, but they're carried away by the wind. You know, people in the first century were dependent upon agriculture, just as we are too, really. Yeah. The world is dependent upon agriculture. And one of the most frustrating things for a farmer is to have this dry, parched field and desperately need some rain. And what appears to be a big storm cloud comes up and comes over you. And then all of a sudden, it's like it's blown away. Like the wind just, just blows away that storm cloud. It dissipates. It's the same point that that cloud promised rain but it couldn't deliver and Mm. same thing about false teachers they they make promises they promise things but they can't deliver because it's not the truth and so as a result of that peter says in verse 19 second peter 2 19 while they promise them liberty that's what false teachers are promising they themselves are slaves of corruption for by whom a person is overcome by him also he is brought into bondage. The false teachers promise liberty, he says, 
But in reality, all they deliver is bondage. They promise, but they can't deliver. Mm -hmm. That's the danger of false teaching. That's why we have to do something about false teaching. It, it dilutes the truth. The right. danger with false teaching is it dilutes the truth. It's like this. Suppose that, that you have in your refrigerator a two-liter bottle of your favorite soft drink. It could be okay. Coke, Dr. Pepper, Sprite, or whatever soft drink you like. You put it in the refrigerator to get it nice and cold. You come in and get you a big glass. You pour that two-liter bottle and fill up your glass with, you know, your favorite beverage. You take a few sips of it, and you step out of the room. Now, someone comes along, and they add just a little bit of water to it. You come back, and you take a drink of it, and you might not notice it at first. And for some reason, you leave again, and somebody comes in and puts a little more water into it. <laughs> and you take a drink again, and you kind of think, you know, th this doesn't quite taste right. Yeah. And again, you leave the room, and for the third time, somebody comes and pours more water in it. And after a while, you take a drink of it, and you say, something's wrong. This doesn't taste right. Well, what ha what's happened is that drink has been diluted. Mm -hmm. You've diluted it mm -hmm. to where by the time you recognize it, it's already too late. You know, your drink's already gone flat. That's the problem we have with false teaching. A little bit of false teaching compared to the truth, you know, you might not notice it initially. But the more false teaching that comes in, the greater it dilutes the truth. Yeah. So that's the danger with false teaching. Yeah. It dilutes the truth. How, how will we, I guess, maybe in my mind and in, in, in the audience, maybe in their mind, uh, they hear what you're saying. They value that this is important. And so we want to be on the lookout for whenever a false teacher comes along. How can we know what they look like or how do we know what a false teacher will be? I mean, I, I imagine they're not going to have a flag or, mm -hmm. you know, a button that pinned on their of a little wolf or something that's going to tell us. So can you offer any insight into what we should expect from a false teacher? Well, remember what Jesus said earlier that these wolves would come in in sheep's clothing. So I don't know that you can always tell false teaching by physical appearance or by the type of person or individual. Because a lot of times people that teach error come in and, and look like they're, they're kind mm -hmm. and generous mm -hmm. and sincere and zealous for the Bible. They, they may speak words of compassion and words of love. And they may quote a lot of scripture. Yeah. They may know some parts of the Bible or all parts of the Bible very well. And they may quote and they may give the appearance that they're they're good people. And they may be good people for that right. matter. They I'm may not just saying be that they're bad people. We're talking about the message. Right. Maybe not right. necessarily the messenger, right. but the message. Mm -hmm. The message they present. And so it it can be difficult to see a false teacher initially if you're just going based on appearance mm -hmm. because for a lot of times they're going to look just like us right they're going to act just like us they're going to say the right things most of the time but i think there are certain things that you have to look for number one the bible tells us how to be saved right and we know that 
Romans 1 16 you know I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it's the power of God and the salvation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jesus said Mark 16 16 he that believeth is baptized shall be saved Peter right. said Acts 2 38 repent and uh, repent and be baptized for the mission of sins right. now when someone comes along and they teach us something different than the Bible plan of salvation that's false teaching mm. no matter how kind and sincere in good no matter how much they may quote the scripture that's false teaching when someone teaches something different than what the bible says about the plan of salvation that's false teaching now secondly the bible tells us how to worship god jesus said in john 4 24 god god is a spirit they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth the bible tells us how to worship god when someone comes along and teaches us to worship in a different way yeah. than the Bible teaches, then that's false teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, the Bible teaches us about the organization of the church. It teaches us the government of the church. Right. It teaches us how a congregation is organized mm-hmm. and all the things that are needed for a church to operate efficiently. Now, when someone comes along and teaches you something different about the organization of the church, that's false teaching. Yeah. One more example. Okay. The Bible tells us how to live as a Christian, how to live the Christian life. The Bible tells us when someone comes along and teaches us that you can do something other than what the Bible says Mm. in living the Christian life, Mm -hmm. then that's false teaching. Now, remember, again, you can't tell a false teacher by the way they look. Right. You can only tell them by what they say what they teach. and only when you compare it to what Scripture says. Right. right. That's the standard right there. Well, good. I, you know, I, I think those four that you just gave are very mm-hmm. tangible, concrete examples. Because I think even though Jesus said that uh, they're going to be like wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, we're still on the lookout for the wolf instead of someone that really looks like a sheep, but when, when they speak, the things that they say stand in contrast to the Word of God. And so we have this, uh, a, the, the I'm going to mess up the word again, self was an ungodly characteristic, right? And then false teaching was an ungodly practice. And these are two ways that we can put enemies to death spiritually that when we apply it from that narrative in 1 Kings chapter 2. I wonder if, as we reach the end of the study, if you have a final thought, maybe a a word of encouragement or just a a nice bow to tie up the study together. Well, I want to summarize what we went through. Sure. Because I think it's important to see the point of this study. It begins with the story from the history of Israel, mm-hmm. and it's it's a physical type of story that deals with a king and his his realm, and there were enemies facing Solomon that would do great harm to his kingdom. He wanted his kingdom to be a kingdom of love and peace and harmony and mm-hmm. unity, and if these enemies continued those traits would not be found there. He would be constantly fighting. In fact, they could bring about the end of his kingdom, Mm. perhaps. Right. And so 
it was necessary necessary for him to destroy these enemies for his kingdom to run efficiently. Well, that story is kind of a springboard into us today. Mm-hmm. There is a principle there. You know, don't misunderstand the principle. But the principle is that within the kingdom today, within the church today, there are enemies that are there. And the scriptures talk about them as being enemies. And we must destroy them. And remember, we're talking here in a figurative sense, right. not in literal. That has to be stressed right. all the way through. And we gave the example of two enemies. One <clears throat> was the, uh, the self, mm-hmm. which you mentioned is a characteristic that that we can have. And self in our lives has to be destroyed. You can't let self live because it, it leads you away from Christ. Mm-hmm. You have to put Christ first. You can't let self reign on that throne in your heart. Yeah. The second enemy was false teaching. Now, keep in mind how we treat people. We treat people with kindness and respect. Right. Even even right. those that we don't agree with, mm-hmm. we treat them with kindness and respect mm-hmm. and, and all. But the teaching that people give, the false teaching, these are things we can't accept Yeah, because it waters down the truth. It dilutes the truth. And sometimes it can happen so quickly that you don't even realize it. Right. And the next thing you know, you're not following the truth anymore mm-hmm. because you're following false teaching. We, we see people leave the church and yeah. go off into other denominations and other religious organizations because they really didn't put to death false teaching. Right. They allowed false teaching in their lives, and it diluted the truth where that they've left the truth. And so that's the warning here is that, that false teaching can't be allowed to continue in our lives because it leads us away from the Lord just like self will. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Dad, for talking with me about this. And I uh, hope our listeners are, are uh, as appreciative as I am because I think, you know, what a wonderful connection it was and it's very encouraging. So I'm very grateful for the time. Thank you for coming in. Well, appreciate it too, Jonathan. It's always good to be able to sit and visit with you. I know he's my dad, but Doug is one of the premier Bible scholars of our brotherhood. And I'm very thankful professionally to have the opportunity to sit with him and talk about the Old Testament because he really knows names and dates and places, but he takes it beyond that and makes it come alive in a way. And I hope that you've experienced that in listening to this miniseries. I certainly did sitting with him and talking about it, and then going back and editing these was just an additional treat as well to re-experience that conversation. I hope that 1 Kings 2 comes alive to you in a way where a man had the uh, last-minute advice given to him, and he took it, and that was to make sure to establish his kingdom by taking care of his enemies. And man, we have to do the same, don't we? You know, the ones that were talked about, the idea of getting self off the throne of your heart and making sure that Jesus reigns, and then dealing with false teaching and making sure that the teaching of the church is pure— These things truly are enemies of the faith. And I'm glad we've had that time to experience them, to be made aware of them, and to empower us to overcome them. Now, if you want to listen to other podcasts like this, if you're new to the podcast, for example, you can go to the website www.pureandsimplebible.com backslash podcast and find the entire catalog of 150 whatever episodes that there is presently there. So go check it out. 
And there's other things. There's videos, there's study workbooks, and it's all free for you to download and use. So please go to the website and look up that great information. Until next week, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, it's real.